HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. One thing to note before we get started on this next episode um, is that, as you probably heard in the show before, titled Remembering Hannah, this was in fact the last show that Hannah Weiss worked on with me before she passed away on December 31st of last year. I want to dedicate this episode to her. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, Before we get into what we're going to be talking about today, I just would like to make a little announcement. This is our season finale, so um, wrapping up a really great fall season. Um, Today, we're going to get a little wonkier than usual, which is saying something, and we're going to talk about an issue that has largely flown uh, under the radar in this never-ending crazy news cycle that we are experiencing. This is the saga, as it has been described, of the Farmer Fair uh, Practices Rules, (laughs) also known as the GYPSA Rules. These rules came to an end on October 18th, as the USDA announced, after a much-delayed decision, that uh, they would be discarded. Joining me to unpack what this means for corporations, farmers, and animal welfare is Claire Brown a staff writer for the New Food Economy who has extensively covered this topic, most recently in her October piece titled Big Meat Just Won a 100-Year-Old Battle. Claire, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So excited, and thank you for being here in studio. Anytime. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's start at the beginning. What are the GYPSA rules? The, The Farmer Fair Practices rules were mandated in the 2008 Farm Bill, 
Um, and they were basically addressing complaints from contract farmers that um, essentially that the playing field is unfair, that the big aggregators like Tyson and Purdue and Sanderson Farms have too much power over the system. Mm-hmm. So in the Farm Bill, they included these rules um, to ensure that farmers have a little bit more power in the way that they grow and sell their chickens and turkeys. These are a a continuation of the Packers and Stockyards Act, which was first passed in 1921. That's uh, 15 years after the publication of The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which exposed a lot of really disgusting practices in the meat industry. Mm -hmm. Basically, there was a federal investigation that revealed there was a lot of um, corporate collusion and this act was sort of passed to establish an agency that watches over the meat companies to make sure that they're all playing fairly. Okay, and that industry or that that agency is Gypsa. Yes. Okay. What like what has the process been? Um, you know, following two thousand eight. Yeah. So. Um, Obama's USDA held listening tours all over the country with farmers, and then they came up with a set of rules. Um, the ones that that made it to 2017 were actually watered down. There was a really controversial one where they eliminated a practice called price fixing, mm-hmm. which is where, among other things, the big meat companies can actually sell chicken to each other. So originally they would have illegalized that, mm-hmm. but in 2011, those were taken out of the final rules. And then every year after 2011, a rider was attached to the appropriations bill, which is what funds the USDA, mm-hmm. that said these GIPSA rules can't go into practice because they won't be funded. You know, when we talk about these rules, who are the major players and how do they interact? Like, can you take us kind of through a walk through the supply chain and and who, uh, you know, is involved in every step? Absolutely. So uh, 97% of the poultry in the United States is farmed under a system called contract farming. And so that's when the big poultry companies, um, there's four of them, Mm -hmm. Pilgrim, Tyson, Purdue, and Sanderson produce, um, I think about 60% of the chicken that we eat. Wow. And so, um, 97% of the chickens in the country um, are produced under the system where the Tysons of the world hatch the chickens and then sell them to farmers who then grow them. It takes a little bit over a month in their houses. And then the farmers sell them back to the poultry companies. But the farmers are in competition with one another when they sell their chickens back. Mm -hmm. So like the top three farmers will get... 50% 50% more per pound, and then the middle three will get the same price. And then the bottom three that have the smallest chickens or mm-hmm. the least healthy chickens actually get a lot less money. That's called the tournament system. Okay, I'm a little confused. So Tyson, let's just say Tyson. Okay. Uh, they they uh, are responsible for like the birth of the chicken. Yes. In their... Tyson-owned facility. Yes. And then they sell them to independent farmers. Yeah, they, they, they bring them to the farmers, lots of different farmers, okay. when they're, like, baby chicks. And are these small family farmers? Are these, like, bigger, more, like, industrialized farmers? Or, like, what is, what is the kind of 
you know, who are these farmers? What do they look like? I think there's quite a lot of variation in how many chickens they grow. They're mostly grown in these big houses that can hold thousands of chickens. But um, John Oliver actually did an episode about this in 2015, and he cited a USDA study from 2001 that said 71% of contract growers actually live at or below the poverty line. Mm -hmm. So even though they may be growing a lot of chickens, most of them aren't making much money on it for reasons that we'll get into. Um, Yikes. Uh, Okay, so then, so these contract growers grow the chicken for a month and then they Mm -hmm. sell them back to the companies. That seems like totally inefficient, weird process. Weird, that's going to be my official (laughs) (laughs) uh, designation for this process. Are there any other like middlemen in the process? Like does, is Tyson largely responsible for um, like slaughtering or does that happen with the contract farmers? Like what is the, are there any more steps in the process? Right. So there's some variation with this. Sometimes Tyson will hire a subcontractor, but typically the, the poultry company really owns everything except for the farming con- uh, the farming process. So on the, the John Oliver episode, he basically called the farming process the babysitting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and he mm-hmm. said the farmers own everything that costs money and Tyson owns everything that makes money. So they'll slaughter, they'll package, they'll sell them to grocery stores, they'll do everything else. One of the major criticisms of this system is that it's really expensive to start a poultry farm, right? So a lot of these people are going, you know, a million dollars into debt to build these houses to their, their company's specific and then they're sort of can't get out of the business until they've paid back the the loaning agency for this build out that they've had to do. So they're sort of locked in once they've invested in it. Um, and that ends up giving the vertical integrators, the Tysons of the world, a lot of power over the farmers. And there, a lot of farmers have alleged that Tyson doesn't treat everyone fairly. Mm-hmm. So even though you're essentially judged by how big your chickens get, your chickens aren't going to get very big if, you, if your chicks are unhealthy. So there is argument that, that people are treated inequitably within the industry. Like they're given bad chickens. <laughs> right. Or, yeah, they're right. not like good chickens to start with. And then they are punished in terms of their, what they're going to make because their chickens aren't great. <laughs> right. And the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and the allegations actually are that sometimes that's retaliatory. Like if a farmer speaks to the press, then the company then can later magically give them feed that's not as nutritional or chicks that aren't as healthy. I mean, why? I mean, if we if we look to these big one, you know, these big uh, corporations that are vertically integrated almost mm-hmm. entirely, like why wouldn't they... Um, include the actual growing raising process. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's a lot of risk involved in the growing and raising process. There's a lot of land. There's a lot of investment. Um, you have to deal with all of the very real problems like sickness. Um, and, and so the farmers are bearing um, a pretty major risk burden. And, and Tyson is sort of able to outsource a lot of the risk onto them. Or at least that's one of the big criticisms of the system. But yet they, they hatch the chickens under their, under their facilities. Right. So, I mean, that seems like it would be risky. I don't know. It just seems like why ship them away when they are already, like, produced kind of in a way within their facility. Yeah. I mean, so that they can grow up. 
<laughs> so they can get bigger. Um, okay, so we so what does the effect? You know, we talk about these three big players, like um, and and corporate consolidation. Indeed, is something we talk about a lot in this show. But um, can you break down a little bit more about what this looks like in the in the ag sector? The the biggest criticism of corporate consolidation in the poultry industry was something we reported on in February 2017, mm-hmm. which is a class action lawsuit among smaller scale producers that um, actually smaller scale integrators like a very small version of Tyson that mm-hmm. the big companies share data with one another about farmer payment systems and and other small details to make sure that they can't outcompete each other. So the criticism is that these few companies hold a lot of power, but they're not actually competing with one another. Now, that lawsuit hasn't moved forward, and we don't know what kinds of evidence the lawyers have, but that has been mentioned as, as one of the main sources of competition. And that's what that 2008 rule was trying to address when it uh, legalized price fixing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that didn't even make it into the farmer fair practices rules in their final version. So, yeah, let's get back to like the, you know, the kind of the more the nitty gritty of the gypsum rules. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, we I said in my intro that these rules were finally thrown out mm-hmm. um, after like a long delay period. And you talked about how it's been watered down, watered down since 2008 or 11, was mm-hmm. it? So what, um, you know, basically... What did they look like before they were discarded? Um, and what is the repercussion, basically? You know, and when is that? When are farmers going to start to feel that? Mm-hmm. Um, so the 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 there was only one that had sort of made it into its final version, and then there were two more that just sort of never saw the light of day. None mm-hmm. of them ever actually went into effect. So the one that was explicitly rolled back was one that eliminated the need for farmers to prove something called competitive injury, which is if you want to sue. Um, the company you're under contract with, you have to prove that everyone has been hurt, not just you. Like so everyone being all every, the farmers. every single farmer in yeah, the so, industry? Yeah, so it would have been, made it much, much easier for an individual farmer to come out and say, hey, I've been treated unfairly. Mm-hmm. And then the, two, the other two, um, one made it illegal for these companies to treat farmers differently so they wouldn't be able to give one quality of chick to one farmer and like one we talked farmer. about yeah yeah and then another one um, made it illegal to uh, retaliate um, for farmers speaking to the press or banding together to try and get a little bit more power in the system mm-hmm. um, and and they both sort of tried to deal with fairness in the tournament system though you know, even if these rules ha- these rules had passed, the tournament system would not have been eliminated. And the tournament system being where they sell the the birds, and some of them are worth a lot more than other ones. Okay, based on the inputs they basically got received. Mm-hmm. So, can you like just give bring this to life in a story? <laughs> just so I mean, it's like you know, it's a lot. It's like a, a lot to wrap our head around. So, can you just kind of like it's you know, very yeah, wonky. yeah. Yeah, um, so actually Politico reported um, around Thanksgiving hours after the GYPSA announcement that a turkey integrator in Pennsylvania had um, suddenly updated contracts with their growers that said make these really expensive updates or accept pay cuts. Um, So they actually were able to talk to one farmer who wanted to retire this year, and they were saying, you know, 
we can't retire now because our contract suddenly changed. And and they told reporters there that had the gypsum rules gone into effect, they would have sued over the sudden contract change. Mm-hmm. And they, the outcome may have been a little bit different. So they just set whatever industry practice whenever. Are there no, there's are no other rules or, you know, requirements like with how, you know, the like industry kind of works with these contract farmers or any other sort of protection? Um, well, there are some from the Packers and Stockyards Act. The argument is that they don't go far enough. The argument is that the system has been exploited. Um, that's not surprising. <laughs> I want to take a really quick commercial break, but when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit more about animal welfare and what these rules, um, you know, what the effect of these rules being discarded have. Stay tuned. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Claire Brown from the New Food Economy about the GYPSA rules that the USDA just recently discarded. Um, so we're going to get into animal welfare, which is kind of the third piece of the puzzle that I wanted to unpack in terms of what the discarding of these rules um, will have an effect on. But um, before we do that, I wanted to ask um, about, like, I guess, next steps. Like, we talk about these rules being discarded. Like, is this the end of the line for any kind of, you know, (laughs) gypsum regulation Mm -hmm. that could uh, protect farmers, contract farmers? Right. So so gypsum is actually in a a point of transition right now because Secretary Sonny Perdue's uh, administration eliminated it as a standalone agency, I think, three weeks or a month ago. So what that means is that whereas it used to have its own administrator and it was, um, you know, its own tree branch on sort of the USDA structural diagram, Mm -hmm. now it's nested under something called the marketing agency. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Uh, it, it's sort of moved from having being a standalone agency to taking all of its functions and then just being nested under another agency. The criticism or the worry that advocates seem to have is that uh, it's nested under this agency that also does uh, marketing for you know the poultry industry or for the beef in- industry sort of as an aggregate. It's where you hear like the incredible edible egg and got milk. Yeah. They run those, che- they're called checkoff programs, which are essentially marketing services for some of the commodities. Um, And so the concern is that you're putting sort of the watchdog and the marketing agency under the same roof. And there's a conflict of interest concern there. I think that a lot of people don't realize that there is, you know, marketing for these kind of essentially these bigger producers that happens at the federal level with federal dollars. 
Yeah, the the checkup programs have been the subject of intense debate in recent years because they're criticized for their lack of transparency. These are the programs that bring you some of the slogans like beef, it's what's for dinner Mm -hmm. or pork, the other white meat. Yes, I like that one. (laughs) Honestly, whenever I hear pork to this day, I think like the other white meat, like in my head, it's not it's like part of the. I, the tagline is like part of the word pork. <laughs> yeah, and the way those are funded are so they're effective, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, they're they're you know they're they're paid into by all these different farmers per head, um, but they they advertise the commodity as an aggregate. So the argument is that a slogan like the incredible edible egg may send eaters to the egg aisle, but then it doesn't tell them, it doesn't, if there's a $4 dozen of eggs and a $1 dozen of eggs, it promotes the $1 dozen of eggs by default because people tend to choose the cheaper option, all of the things feeling equal. But this doesn't, does that really affect, that doesn't really necessarily affect, uh, like contract farmers, right? Um, no, they're they are not paying into the contract system. Right. The concern is just that now it the contract farming uh, oversight agency is nested also under this marketing agency that also advocates for these chicken aggregate groups mm-hmm. in the marketplace. Okay, okay. What else does this like proposed? reorg of the USDA kind of mean it. What was like the driving force? What, like Purdue was like, we're going to do this because why? I, th- I believe he was saying they were eliminating redundancies. To a bystander, it makes very little sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does things like move GMO labeling into the same place as these farmer affair practices rules. And it, it moves another controversy thing called country of origin labeling under the AMS, which is what these farmer fair practices rules are also under. And so it kind of takes some of these more controversial things and puts them all in one place. Mm-hmm. And it remains to be seen what effect that will actually have on how the agency runs as a whole. Um, it's interesting because like, you know, I, farmers, we know, like overwhelmingly supported Trump in the, you know, in the most recent election. And it seems like these said farmers, like contract farmers, are, are probably getting really, they are getting really hurt, will be really mm-hmm. hurt by a move from the administration that they were hoping would be, you know, very supportive of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many of the sources we spoke with for this story were surprised because making a decision that would sort of make life a little bit easier for these small scale ish rural farmers seems to fit very much in line with the America First policy. Mm-hmm. And so I think a lot of people were a little bit befuddled by this decision because it seems to run contrary to what he was campaigning on. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, talk a little bit about animal welfare. And, and you know, first I, I want to, like, ask about, we, we do see this trend in industry in general about, you know, companies kind of trying to do the right thing. And there have been a lot of announcements from these major companies in the past few years about going or or trying to go striving, I think was mm-hmm. the word, to go, you know, to, to move towards an antibiotic free, um, you know, uh, product and, uh, you know, making sure that their eggs are cage free or, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like how, how will this affect those contract farmers? These kind of big promises that these companies are purporting to do. 
Right. So my understanding is that the Tysons and the Sandersons of the world are also providing, you know, the, the medications that are given to the animals. So if Tyson decides to go antibiotic free, it may not actually affect the contract farmers because it's just part of this suite of supplies, including feed that they're purchasing from the person they're under contract with. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 if, then that would affect their flock, though, wouldn't it? Yeah. Right. So so we really don't know very much about what these companies are planning to do um, as they roll back antibiotics. It's possible that the health of the flocks won't be affected very much. It's it seems if it seems politically tenable to to Tyson to make this commitment, then presumably they've found that there's another way to do things. Um, Mm -hmm. We don't know what that is. Um, We don't know if these companies have met their commitments yet. I'm sure we'll hear about it when they're 100% antibiotic free. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a Washington Post article recently that said there's some evidence of progress in that antibiotic sales across the country seem to have been down this year. But yeah, we, we really don't know a whole lot about what going antibiotic free means for an individual chicken. Are there resources provided to these contract farmers if and when a company like Tyson decides to make a big shift in its um, growing practices? Well, that is one of the criticisms that comes out of a lawsuit we were reporting on earlier this year, which is um, when the company decides to make even a small shift, like installing blackout curtains or changing the way that they fan the the chicken litter, Mm -hmm. that that cost of just building the infrastructure is passed on to the farmers. So say you're we were talking to one, uh, our, my colleague Joe Fassler interviewed one person who was like within three years of coming out of debt with Tyson. And then the company required that she make $100,000 in upgrades to her farm. And then um, very soon after that, she asked not to do it. And I, I think it was like kind of a, a deal breaker. And so there is um, a, a debt uh, impact here where the company decides to make changes and then if the farmers have to make updates to the to the facilities themselves then they bear the cost burden of that what about or when we what about organic farmers are there any organic farmers or growers that are contract farmers for these bigger companies yeah i believe uh Many organic chickens are also grown under the the contract farming system. Um, There are actually different animal welfare rules for organic. Um, They actually have a very similar story. They were, uh, the most recent ones were passed in the twilight of the Obama administration and were just recently, I think last month, pushed back to May 2018. Okay. And just like the GIPSA rules, what they do is really small. We as consumers would probably not notice the difference, mm-hmm. but they do things like make sure every chicken has one foot of space and they, you know... <laughs> one put, whole foot! <laughs> or every, Real luxury. I think technically it's every 3.5 pounds of chickens oh have God. one foot of space. <laughs> so they just put a finer point on some of the organic welfare and animal requirements, and those would not affect non-organic birds. Um, so, okay, so then in getting back to kind of like, you know, I mean, not continuing the conversation about animal welfare, what does, what, what does the future look like, you know, for these birds now that this rule has been thrown out? 
That's a really good schools. question. Um, so we're coming up on a brand new farm bill next year. Mm-hmm. Um, Representative Earl Blumenauer, too much fanfare, released an alternative farm bill recently, which actually included an entire chapter about animal welfare. Mm-hmm. Um, and the things he was calling for were not radical. I mean, it, it finalizes these organic livestock and poultry plans that we just talked about. That affects chickens. It also affects the way cows and pigs are slaughtered, the way they're transported to slaughter, the way they're handled. You know, he's also calling for animal welfare and research centers. You know, USDA is responsible for a lot of the research that happens, and so they just want these scientists to follow stricter protocols in the way they treat animals. Um, it, it raises the profile of animal welfare certifications, mm-hmm. and so, you know, if you're animal welfare approved, but the USDA supports that certification, you're likely to, if, if the government is supporting the certification, you're, there's more likelihood that the general public will know about it and know mm-hmm. that it exists and perhaps pay more to know certain things about their animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's also calling for the agency to publicize rule breakers. So if a company has an animal welfare violation, that will go on some sort of online repository that the public can access. So what else, I mean, so anything kind of that would directly support uh, these farmers, these middlemen in in his uh, proposed farm bill legislation? Um, I'm not aware of any contract farming. Again, I have not read the entire thing line by line. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know... It's an open playing field for the 2018 Farm Bill, and really anything could happen. The the last update on the Farmer Fair Practices Rule was mandated by the Farm Bill, so there's reason to hope that, that a similar thing will happen this time around. Well, okay, so what else? I mean, what does this sort of the future hold for these farmers? And, you know, is there any kind of current legal resource for them? Yeah, well, recently we've started seeing um, more media pickup of these sort of gotcha videos that places like PETA and Mercy for Animals film undercover. Mm-hmm. Um, I think just last week there was a video that um, Tyson actually ended up ending a relationship with a contractor um, because that came out. So we've seen a little bit of pickup with that. Um, there are a couple of lawsuits kicking around that uh, if they were to move forward would impact contract farmers like the like the collusion suit that these farmers have against the producers in terms of the way that they're paid mm-hmm. um, and the way that they suspect these big companies share data. Again, we haven't seen movement on that. Um, from and, a, and we don't know for sure if they share data. That's just like Correct. A, that's yeah. an allegation. Okay. There are some lawsuits sort of in, inching their way through the system that, that would have an impact. And, you know, again, the 2018 Farm Bill is a major resource, I think. So if, um, you know, people listening kind of want to get involved or want to like do something to move the needle or to support these kind of contract farmers, I mean, you know, or, or actually move to sort of advocate to like reshape the industry as a whole, which I don't know, I don't even know how you start to do that. It seems kind of like too far gone, especially in terms of this consult, like how much power these um, three or four main companies have. But, mm-hmm. you know, how can our listeners basically get involved? That's a great question. Um, You know, the idea would be that people engage with food policy in the way that they engage with, you know, we saw lots of mobilization around the ACA and we saw Mm -hmm. some mobilization around tax reform. So, and I know many advocates in the food policy space are hoping that that kind of grassroots support and that kind of 
consumer engagement and that interest in the nitty gritty of this stuff and mm-hmm. and becoming you know sort of a citizen wonk mm-hmm. um, really helps in grassroots support for initiatives like this. Um, you can also follow some of the organizations that are pushing for animal welfare, supporting places like um, the Organization for Competitive Markets deals with contract growers. Um, the ASPCA has been advocating for some of the organic welfare rules. The mm-hmm. Organic Trade Association has also been filed a complaint with USDA to get those rules finalized. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and you can always vote with your fork purchasing chicken that comes from a farm you know about or mm-hmm. comes from a comes with an animal welfare approved seal which is a very reputable seal mm-hmm. and you can shop at our harvest because we know our chickens come from cascoon farms and we even know right down to the you know the actual feed that they are um given <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have to leave it there and claire i want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for unpacking these very complicated um issues but you know super super important Great. Thank you for having me. Um, For more um, on what uh, Claire has written in the past, um, go to New Food Economy, which is uh, newfoodeconomy.org. Yeah, and check it out. Lots of great things coming out of that publication. Thank you. Okay, I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support and to our show intern, Hannah Weiss, um, as well as our show engineer, Vida Hirsch. Show music is by Tim Archer, and all episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, um, leave us a comment, and let, you, let us know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.